Hello, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we gather friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Hi, I'm Jimmy Ronald, and I'm a junior member at ICS and a new member of the Critical Faith team. I'm joining you today from scenic Edmonton, Alberta, where we are currently sitting at a balmy zero degrees Celsius. Joining me today is our guest, Dr. Robert Sweetman. Bob is senior member in the history of philosophy at the ICS. He's a trained medievalist and an alumnus of the University of Toronto, the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies, and Calvin College. Bob currently sits in the H. Evan Runner Chair in the History of Philosophy, which I hope is quite comfortable. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Bob on the topic of inhabiting tradition. In the most recent edition of ICS's Perspective magazine, Bob, you contributed an article titled A Living Tradition in the Past and Future's Gift. The guiding question of the article was, how can we cultivate an openness to the gifts of both the past and the future in ourselves and in our communities here and now? This question suggests a connection between tradition and temporality. To be involved in a tradition is to inherit the past of that tradition with all the gifts and baggage that come along with it, as well as the future of that tradition, a sense of responsibility for discerning how new problems and possibilities can be engaged with. Can you talk a bit about how the traditions you've been involved in have shaped your scholarly journey and how you see your work as contributing to those traditions? Yeah, sure. Um, as I said in the article, um, I, I have really been brought up in two intellectual traditions uh, the one the reformational tradition in uh, of christian philosophy and second the uh, the gilsonian tradition uh, within uh, thomism and uh, that was just i mean uh, the reformational tradition is something that came that was just part and parcel of uh, my upbringing in um, a, a Dutch Reformed context, um, going to Christian schools, going to Calvin College, um, taking classes with H. Evan Runner um, shortly before he retired, um, and so on. So um, that's the first tradition. But when I went to uh, graduate school at the University of Toronto and simultaneously at the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies, um, this was an institution designed precisely for the furtherance of Etienne Gilson's project of Christian philosophy, which he identified as um, uh, characteristic of uh, the medieval tradition of scholastic thought. 
So those are the two, and you know, years of, of working with uh, people at Pontifical Institute. Um, also, uh, you know, I realized that um, there was something about this tradition that couldn't be written off in the uh, polemical terms um, that had been defined in my other tradition, the Reformational tradition uh, of philosophy. So, um, so with a one foot in each camp, so to speak, I've tried to um, be a a good member of both, um, recognizing that you know there are, I mean, they represent different hunches as to about as to what it means to think faithfully. So in the Reformational tradition, in particular, um, because it has. Uh, my life, my adult life, has been as a teacher at ICS, which has introduced or has, uh, you might say, been much more oriented to discerning uh, the gift of the future to tradition, uh, rather than uh, the expectations that the the tradition in its past, as it's come into the present. Uh, offers. Um, and so obviously, as somebody historically trained, um, the latter project seemed an important thing to add into or or to uh, stiffen, if you will, with uh, a real sense of what the past has given us, um, ICS's historic orientation to the future new. So that's really the role that I've played in the pedagogy of the Institute and, and hopefully in the, um, the unfolding of its faithfulness within the tradition. At the Pontifical Institute, uh, my uh, participation in the Gilsonian tradition, uh, which has tended over the years to become increasingly a, a conservative traditionalism to see only uh, the gift of the past as, as something worthwhile um, is to recover or help to recover for them Gilson's own sense that the tradition needed to be open to the gift of the future. So I've, you know, done, I mean, I think I'm the only person at the University of Toronto who teaches courses on Gilson um, because I think he's, he is really, really important. And um, he is a figure that does not fit in Catholic backlash. Um, in fact, he got in trouble with the backlash people of his own day because they thought he was, uh, you know, uh, basically a, a Thomist mole for the Soviet Union and worldwide communism. It was called La Fave Gilson. And it was a uh, he uh, he really took it on the chin from a number of um, of his fellow Thomists. Yeah, it sounds like um, these two traditions you're talking about they both share something in common, which is that they want to pursue like faithfully Christian scholarship. But as you said, they kind of have slightly different interpretations of uh, what that means, different hunches. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, that? notion of the Catholic backlash that uh, at, at the Angelson didn't quite fit into. I'm not sure I um, have the context to fully understand what that what that means. Well, if you were to uh, look, maybe we can approach it in terms of the theme of authority. So what is authority and what might an authoritative text or an authoritative theory be? So if you look at a Thomas Aquinas, and ask him the question, what is an authority? And what 
what does it mean for, say, a text to be authoritative? He means that's the right place to start in order to talk about and think about subject X. You might not want to end there. In other words, an authority can be dead wrong, but it's still the right place to start. So there's a kind of open-endedness to authoritative discourse, authoritative texts, the role of authority in a tradition. So a tradition is authoritative and yet open to the new in the future. And this is true throughout the Middle Ages. But in the 19th century, the rate of historical change in European society accelerated enormously. Weber called it the process of differentiation that got going, got rumbling, got momentum, and so on. And um, what happened is society began to change so quickly that the authoritative orientation to society seemed less and less relevant because the changes made our present look less and less like anything we had encountered and thought about in the past. And so the understanding of tradition began to change, both in Catholicism and in Protestantism, that is to say the two dominant Christian traditions within uh, Western Europe and its colonial daughters like Canada and the United States. And this was to see tradition as, um, you might say, a discussion stopper. In other words, it marks the limit of faithful discourse rather than the beginning of faithful discourse. So it sets a horizon, a safe horizon. Anything you say, think, or do within the horizon already given by the past to the present, that's safe that's fine, you're okay. Anything outside of that horizon is, you know, red flag. We don't go there. That's to uh, corrupt the tradition and so on and so forth. And that is, you might say, to enclose tradition within the past. It's no longer open to the new of the future. Because the new of the future, by its very definition, is outside of what is given in the past, even though it's there is a, a deep continuity. So traditionalism is what I mean by backlash. And both you find it both in Orthodox Protestantism and in, um, you might say, traditionalist Catholicism. Right. So the difference between uh, tradition understood positively in a nuanced and rich way versus traditionalism is that um, Tradition can be understood as like a, a starting point for discussion. The traditions you're in and that you inhabit provide you with a place to start that you can then move forward and develop. Whereas with traditionalism, the authority of the tradition restricts, contains your thinking such that you can't move outside of what's been said or done in that tradition in the past. So I especially appreciate you talking about the philosophy of the Middle Ages too because I think that's something that tended to be dismissed a lot in modernity and still today, because people say that, oh, medieval philosophy, it's all just too authoritative. So the medieval thinkers, they didn't think for themselves, really. But yeah. it sounds like you're saying for someone like Thomas Aquinas, he's going to look back to these ancients, Aristotle, for inspiration, and because they're a good place to start. But he is going to not just slavishly stick to what they said, he's going to 
carefully, critically examine it to see if it's still relevant, if it can continue to be relevant. Yeah. Although the fascinating thing with someone like Aquinas is even when he disagrees with Aristotle, that is to say, even when he takes a position that's different from the one Aristotle himself thought he was making, Aquinas works by ligature, by connection rather than by rupture. So in other words, he doesn't present his position as inconsistent with Aristotle, but maybe the true intention of Aristotle. You know, you can, uh, you could make a case for a traditionalism on the basis of uh, his constantly uh, attempting to say, I'm just saying, I'm just saying what my sources said, uh, <laughs> when in fact he's much more creative than that. Maybe he even verged on the side of being a bit too charitable at times. <laughs> Um, but Bob, do you see your work in uh, the Reformational and uh, Gilsonian traditions opening up the relevance of those traditions and what they have to say for those who are outside of them? So like, for example, for someone like me, who isn't really too involved yet in either one of those traditions, do you still see them as having relevance? Well, I think they're, they're only relevant if they have something to offer the world at large. If it becomes just an in-house thing about, you know, pe pe people who are, as it were, already convicted by the tradition to, um, as it were, move the pieces of the tradition around in different ways and argue about what's the right way to arrange the furniture, um, that, you know, that becomes a pretty incestuous thing and uh, a small tradition like the Reformational tradition. This is this is really always a, um, a temptation and um, a threat to its future. So, yeah, I, I, I think they have to find ways of um, bearing witness that's faithful to who and what they are. Um, but in a way that is able to catch the attention of people outside the tradition so that they, you know, whether they end up rejecting it, whether they end up uh, adopting it, or whether they end up in a really, really mutually positive uh, discussion of, of criticism, uh, that's really what you want. And there's a marvelous tradition or a marvelous example of, of, of this in Doivet's relationship with transcendental Thomism uh, of the Marichel variety. He got uh, the uh, transcendental Thomists of Louvain were very interested in what he was doing. They had, you might say, classically Catholic critiques of some of, some of the moves he made, just as he often spoke in ways that uh, mimic um, classic Calvinist critiques of Roman Catholicism. Um, but they saw it that uh, on the philosophical level, that that the intuitions of a transcendental Thomist and the intuitions of of a Doivit or a Vollenhofen were close enough so that they needed to be talking and together and learning from each other, and it had a huge effect on him. He stopped talking about Calvinistic philosophy and started calling his philosophy Christian philosophy, uh, that is to say, one voice within the choir of voices that have given. Um, you know, their vocation over to uh, the articulation of something of value to all Christian believers.
So on your faculty page on the ICS website, you talk about your interest in stories, especially when understood in comparison to arguments. You ask the guiding question, when does one best understand life by a story, and when is one served by clever argument? You then go on to mention three traditions that you've examined through this lens in your scholarly work. First, 13th century high scholasticism, second, 12th century Platonism, and third, 13th and 14th century mysticism. Is there anything you've learned about tradition and the connection between tradition and storytelling by examining the history of philosophy with this guiding question in mind? Um, well, that story can play a number of different roles in a philosophy. In other words, it will fit in a philosophy in terms of what a philosophy thinks philosophy is, and hence uh, what a methodology, what methodologies are appropriate to it in pursuing, um, you know, in the pursuit of philosophy, you know, and its understand and the understanding of the world that it opens up. You know, in the case of uh, a heavily Aristotelian uh, methodology, such as one finds in a uh, scholastic work of the 13th century, a story will always have a subsidiary place in uh, the, the work of philosophical analysis. In other words, it will, it will be the handmaid of argument. And uh, the, and so the exemplum, you know, that is to say, the the philosophical narrative illustration, uh, particularly in ethics, uh, is important, but it's subject to uh, our ability to articulate the ethical whole and then to make distinctions that are logically justifiable, and that allow us then to explore the implications of subsequent claims. Um, so the, the reason story becomes important is because in ethics, especially, is because you're dealing with bodies. Human beings are embodied. They are their bodies quite as much as they are their souls in an Aristotelian framework. And therefore, um, the uh, uh, bodily continuousness of, of life, which is, um, is such that the stasis, the, the uh, the relative unchangingness, you might say, of definitions and of uh, propositions that, that work with and articulate uh, themselves in terms of definitions um, doesn't get at the character of bodily living in a way that um, is without remainder. And so story, which is, of course, all about process, Stories are processes. They move from beginning to middle to end. Um, this becomes a supplement to uh, our use of definitions, our formation of logical propositions, and then our joining of propositions together in valid chains of thought and argument. In the 13th century and it, within the scholastic environment of the universities, story is, 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 a, is a supplement. Now, once I say that, I have to say on the explicit level, but at the implicit level, uh, the, the giant monuments of scholastic thought have an implicit narrativity about them. Um, to, uh, Thomas Hibbs, for example, in the in 1990s, um, uh, produced a monograph on the Summa Contradentiles of Thomas Aquinas. 
which shows how the um, what the Neoplatonic uh, movement of exitus reditus, the going out and the coming back as correlative movements, and in fact, simultaneous correlative movements, um, it becomes, if you will, the, the backbone to a kind of narrativity that is implicit within this highly logical and systematic um, presentation of the Catholic faith. So, you know, on an implicit level, uh, even in scholasticism, story is far more important than you might think. Um, in my own teaching career and in my own research, um, my interest in story in terms of the history of philosophy has come out in uh, the historiography of the Middle Ages. In other words, um, how and why do we philosophers tell the stories we do about the history of philosophy? That's, and I've, you know, I've, I've worked on the problem history that um, uh, Vollenhoven um, appropriates from uh, his Neo-Kantian teachers or interlocutors um, and develops his own uh, uh, Christian version of um, also the uh, Aristotelian Thomistic tradition from Aristotle uh, through to Thomas Aquinas and beyond to Etienne Gilson, a figure I've already mentioned, <laughs> the founder of the Pontifical Institute where I went to school. And then um, uh, the, you might say, the uh, most characteristic postmodern approach, historiographical approach to the history of philosophy, and that is the so-called genealogy. So in other words, uh, the history of philosophy as a genealogy um, that has a kind of um, subversive effect on embedded senses of the meaning of thought. So um, in the Aristotelian kind of methodology for philosophy, arguments kind of take priority as a more privileged form of persuasion, whereas stories are secondary or subsidiary. And philosophers in the Middle Ages are all working within that broadly Aristotelian tradition, so they tend to prioritize arguments for that reason. But in your research, you kind of read between the lines a little bit and see where stories are functioning as very significant uh, ways of persuasion. And implicitly as framing devices. And this is no surprise because the Latin philosophers are also Latin theologians who, in other words, who philosophize out of an encounter with Christian faith and Christian revelation. And if you look at scripture, story is vastly more important to the structure, the literary structure of scripture than is argument. Yeah, it's great. Thanks, Bob. I also appreciate that postmodern connection because it seems like in a lot of postmodern philosophy, philosophers are starting to realize that if philosophy is going to be relevant and accessible uh, to the world at large, it can't just be based on arguments, abstract propositions, and so on. Um, the use of story, rhetoric has to be in there as well, essentially. And, you know, the philosophy as literature I mean, part of that is uh, French philosophy, even before the postmodern turn, you know, is, was carried on by people who were not just philosophers. They were playwrights and uh, novelists and uh, poets. And so 
the, an emphasis on philosophy as uh, literature as well as uh, a theoretical examination of, uh, you might say, the coherences to be found within existence, um, or to use uh, a, a beautiful expression that I really like and have adapted to, uh, to for myself um, as a bearing witness to the mystery of existence, you know, you you need more than just syllogisms to bear witness to the mystery of existence. You need poetry. You need uh, you need the novelist's playfulness, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So uh, the the French um, have had that as part of their tradition. And if you think of the uh, central importance of uh, French post-structuralism and French uh, psychoanalytic thought to uh, the postmodern turn, then it's no accident that those sorts of liaisons between literature and philosophy, um, you know, have become so characteristic of postmodern thought in general. The way that you framed the differences there between pre-modern and postmodern shift, basically, is in terms of priority. So there's a prioritization of logic over story explicitly, and then that flips to a prioritization of story over logic. To me, a key factor in the way that you explain that anyway, is that they're still in contact. They're just flipped around. Yes. Like the, the analytic complaint about continental thought, that there just aren't any arguments, much less. There aren't any, any bad arguments, much less good arguments, right? There's just no argument. Amen. <laughs> is, is is absolutely wrong, but you have to learn how you you have to learn how to see how these arguments are structured, you know, because the uh, the the traces uh, happen differently because they're contextualized differently. There is absolutely no effort in analytic philosophy to uh, to house argument in literature, uh, although there are some fine, fine writers, and even someone like Alvin Plantinga, who's a logical machine, has a brilliant imagination. So in other words, it's, it's not that the imagination and playfulness and so on and so forth are absent from analytic philosophy, but it structurally foregrounds argument in a way that continental thought does not. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that that conversation and then the way that you've also just explained it the thing that it brought to mind is um, just thinking of the contemporary moment, right? Like the post-truth stuff where you have people living in their own little story worlds, what seems to me that are completely divorced from logic. <laughs> but internally, that's not possible to see, obviously. Yeah. Um, so the I wonder if that's something new considering how you uh, explained the other two as simply like a reordering, whereas this seems to be like a complete separation? Well, I don't think it's new. I think it's a, a product of uh, what Diltai von Mannheim and people like that called the age of Ideologiestreit, right? So the, the struggle of ideology that you know we most recently identify with the Cold War and the struggle between capitalism and uh, communism, but uh, you know it goes back to uh, the mid nineteenth century. Um, this age, right? In fact, I would say it's the 
the heart of it is between about 1850 and 1950. And then, in fact, World War II has had a... Uh, disillusioning, um, yeah, it has been hard on ideologies, uh, let's put it that way. Uh, we, have, we have a hard time believing in those big stories because of what they led to in the 20th century. So, um, you know, so if you uh, think in those terms, um, the living in your own world um, is you know, something that uh, was choreographed into ideologically plural societies, particularly in Western Europe um, in the late 19th and early 20th century as a way of avoiding uh, permanent revolution. So instead of having an absolute um, competition, you know, a, a live or die competition where one side has to win and, the, and all other sides lose, it's a, choreo a choreographing of the different uh, ideological worlds in such a way that they can live together. This is, is really the project between 1850 and 1950, in Western Europe especially. So there are different visions of the good that have their own rational protocol. Right, so if you're if you come if you're part of neo-scholasticism, so you're part and parcel of the building of of a of an ideological version of the Catholic worldview. Um, you use um, uh, you you tend to look at uh, in the first instance binary oppositions, and then you look at as a subsidiary event how do they relate to each other, how do the things opposed relate to each other, and so on and so forth. But that's how you tend to work. If you're Hegel, that's not how you tend to work. You say, yeah, 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 that's an appearance. But in fact, um, there is a deep unity to the cosmos, a spirit to the cosmos that is progressively making itself incarnate, present in our world of bodies in motion. And so there is a unity, but it's a unity that comes to us, as it were, from the future. So only by living with the apparently dichotomous and binary uh, oppositions, if we live with them long enough, something will appear that, as it were, harvests what is right and true in each of the opposed things into a synthesis that is neither of the opposed things, but has the virtues of both of them, right? So this is this is the the logic of contrariety rather than the logic of binary opposition or of dichotomy. And of course, with the Derrida and um, uh, deconstruction and so on, um, something similar is at work only uh, instead of contrariety or, um, or dichotomy, he emphasizes correlativity, that nothing is meaningful apart from what it's related to, right? So, and he's picking up on uh, de Saussure's um, uh, linguistics there, right? So that's how meaning is made. It's made in contextually. It's made by the co-relative connection of terms to uh, other terms within an utterance or a saying. And, uh, and, and that you'll see that correlativity below the surface of any contrariety on the one hand or dichotomy on the other. 
So there are different rational protocols. And this is something, of course, that um, uh, Alistair McIntyre saw very clearly and saw the political uh, outworkings of. And I mean, that's what he saw. So if he saw correctly, the post-truth era is, you might say, a post-modern implication of the uh, the age of a uh, vestige of the age of ideology, which is really the age of high modernity. I guess as a follow up to this, your previous response. Um, you will be retiring from ICS soon this year uh, after years of faithful service. <laughs> um, and I think just as a last, you know, last word from you here for the podcast, um, I would like to hear a little bit from you about, you know, what you're currently working on uh, and what you're looking forward to working on next and into the future. Okay. So, um... I have an old project that I really need to finish off, and that is um, a, um, a study of Thomas Aquinas on the virtues, what he calls the virtues of religion and science. So it's a way of changing uh, the modern conversation around science and religion, where these are, um, uh, these are you might say, uh, uh, images that collect meaning. So they're very, very, they function very, very complexly in our world, but they're viewed in dichotomizing ways, right? So, you know, you either privilege religion or you privilege science, but you can't have them both, so to speak, right? Is a kind of uh, post-enlightenment uh, truism in a, in a secularizing culture. Um, and uh, so I thought it might be interesting if we changed the conversation because they function very, very differently in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Um, one is an intellectual virtue. Science is an intellectual virtue. That is to say, it's a, it's a certain configuration of uh, apprehension, our capacity to apprehend the world. Um, and religion is a... Um, is, is a uh, modality of justice. And in other words, it's our, it's what we owe beings that are higher than we are. Um, and it is like all the, um, the moral virtues, it is about desire and it's about desiring the right things and in the right way and so on. So apprehension and desire, they are not dichotomizable. They need each other. They're correlative in their functioning within human life. And so the conversation around science and religion really, really changes if you think, think of this. And in the process of, uh, of um, uh, researching this book, um, I started looking at what does Thomas Aquinas mean by a life? And what, how is it related to acts of living? And in that context, it's like, well, a life is not about one thing. So if you live a religious life, it doesn't mean that everything you do is, to put it in Doiverian terms, faith qualified. What it is, is that acts of religion, like 
prayer and uh, and worship and so on and so forth, these acts somehow stand for the whole of your life. They 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 give themselves and their meaning as the character of the life you live. You know, uh, an angry person isn't always angry, but if they're living an angry life, it means that when they're ang angry, that is somehow experienced by those around them as typical, characteristic of this person. This person is always angry and so on and so forth, right? So I started looking at this, this sense of life so uh, our it, would a scientific life or a religious life be incompatible with each other? So that's, I need to finish that off. I have most of it, uh, first draft of most of it written and I just have to come back to it. It's a little bit stale. In the meantime, I've been getting interested in, in another huge project and that's around competition. Uh, particularly in a capitalist environment and in a globalizing environment, uh, understanding competition is terribly important because we've set it up as a hypernorm. In other words, it is uh, a norm we use to judge um, all kinds of other norms uh, that operate in our society. Um, it tends to be viewed as a good in and of itself. and. Um, at least from my point of view, um, this is a very problematic construal of competition. And it, it because it baptizes a lot of very, very toxic competition. So what I started looking for is how is competition thematized in ancient and medieval thought? Um, and, uh, you know, what might, how, how might that as it were, um, offer a different perspective from which to view the, uh, the modern context. So the context in which I alighted upon was both religious and pedagogical. So both in, in religious stories and in pedagogical frameworks, um, competitive imitation um, is uh, a normative pattern and but it's a normative pattern that is itself ruled to philia or friend love in all its different modalities so there's a proper competition between a husband and a wife between parents and children uh, between neighbors um, you know students and teachers um, um, uh, spiritual guides and their clients, uh, confessors and penitents. You know, there's, it's a very, like Fidia is this very, very differentiated uh, notion of love. Um, and it is the, um, the glue that is, a, or that is assume, assumed to be the glue that holds us all together. Um, so competition takes place within the context of friendship. And when it is motivated by love, um, it is the most wonderful thing. It allows the saint to use the language of Paul to complete the works of Christ. Um, when it's motivated by envy instead, 
uh, the result is disaster. So I've been following that story. And then uh, I got to, uh, I was uh, thinking in terms of, well, friendship, one of the marks, one of the traces of friendship in our society together is the circle of gift and gratitude. Friends give each other gifts and are grateful for the gifts given. Um, so then I was reading um, a book on uh, gratitude by uh, Lightheart. He, he writes in, uh, I think he teaches at the New St. Andrews and he writes often for first things. Uh, he's far more conservative than I feel comfortable with on, in social and political matters, but he's very, very learned. Um, and I read his book and became very interested in his sense that the modern world has become, the modern social world has become an ingrate world. That is to say, where friendship is problematic by its definition. It's not that there can't be friends that operate together and cooperate in social and political and economic contexts, but it always takes extra justification. Because the first impulse is what? They're friends? That's a conflict of interest. So in other words, we've evacuated as a normative feature of our social existence, philia. Philia has no place in the public sphere. And we saw it first in politics and then with Adam Smith in economics and in the 19th century in the academy. So we've seen the public, as the public sphere itself is differentiated, and, and expanded, so has the, the uh, area of proper ingratitude to, to speak in Lightheart's way. And that struck me as a really, really uh, Im important topic to, to work on, to make the strong connection in pre-modern thought, and then to ask the question, why does the modern world come to a different judgment? What is gained? What is lost? and to move from there. So that's, you know, that's a huge project. I, uh, I definitely am going to be giving myself over to it because I think this would be a very, very important book. So that's, I'm gonna be doing that. And then uh, the mystics, you know, have been calling me and it's also about love and uh, about, but about uh, where Phidia and Eros come together, or to use the Christian terms, Eros and Agape come together. And I have unfinished work there. That brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Jimmy, it's both been a long time since we have done this segment, and it is your first time doing this segment. So, welcome to the podcast, What's Your Pleasure? Thank you, Danielle. My Pleasure is a book I'm currently reading by uh, my favorite theologian, David Bentley Hart. So the book is called Roland in Moonlight. It was published in uh, 2021, and it's all about David and his pet dog, Roland. 
as it turns out, Roland is a surprisingly capable philosopher of mind, and he uh, has many conversations with his owner uh, that range across a variety of philosophical topics. So here on the back cover of the book, it says, Eschewing the rigidity of the human either-or, Roland's diagonal approach offers secret illuminations and hidden affinities as all and sundry come into his purview. Paganism, dreams, language, myth, politics, American Christianity, Indian metaphysics, Japanese aesthetics, but perhaps most of all, this book is a kaleidoscopic exploration of the nature of mind and consciousness. Uh, Hart is an excellent writer. Um, he does not mince words, and uh, <laughs> he's okay with like completely disagreeing with uh, a broad theological or philosophical consensus uh, if he sees fit. And yeah, it's just uh, a pleasure to read. So this is a fictional book? It is uh, semi-fictional. It's uh, very personal, which is a lot different from uh, Hart's other books, which mostly focus on like theological and philosophical topics. But this is a lot about like um, his personal journey, what he's been going through the last few years in his life, um, the stuff he's been researching. But it's all done through the lens of him having these conversations with his dog. So is that real or fictional? That's up to you to decide. <laughs> is there I am, yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's surprising to me because I do only know him as a as a theologian and you know philosopher that like i did not know he uh ventured into the realm of fiction question mark so that is interesting uh my follow-up to this very interesting book that you have just described in great detail sounds amazing my burning question though is is this dog's name full name roland bark i i know i think he shares a last name with his owner so he's roland hart (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, it's Sorry just to a missed opportunity here, <laughs> David. <laughs> should have named your dog. You should write Roland him an angry Bark. email or something. <laughs> yes. So, how about you, Danielle? What's your pleasure? Uh, well, my pleasure currently, and I'm trying to remember, I guess over the past year, uh, has been accepting the fact that I play video games. <laughs> leaning into this identity um so currently uh that has taken the form of the i guess it's still the latest uh zelda game breath of the wild uh so i have i was gifted a nintendo switch and this game and very recently this game and so i'm just getting into it and roaming about a very lovely little world and have discovered with this game and a couple of other games that I've played over the last year that I just really do enjoy. Like video games have gotten quite artistically beautiful uh, in the last number of years. And some of these games are just like really lovely to just look at uh, and exist in, uh, if you will, in the mode of a player. Um, and this newest game that I have is no exception. You get quite large vistas and landscapes and, uh, everything is just like really beautifully rendered. Um, so that has been my pleasure recently. There's been a couple of other more small scale kind of, uh, independently designed video games that I've also quite enjoyed uh very different styles of things but yeah so exploring that uh that world of beautifully designed video games has been uh my pleasure 
lately. That's awesome. I've heard really good things about Breath of the Wild, so another yeah. reason for me to download it. That's it for our show this week. If you want to hear more from Bob, we have a few more episodes with Bob in the Critical Faith Archive, so have a listen to those. Bob will also be speaking at this year's ICS Convocation on May 26th, so make plans to join us in person in Toronto then, if you're able. Otherwise, the recording will also be available afterward. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on www.icscanada.edu. And if anything from today's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find ICS on Twitter as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm -hmm.